I'm, not, I'm no longer the person who like plans the sermon series and gives who to what. Um, our good friend Aaron Rose, God bless her, does that. Uh, and so a couple of months ago, we're looking at like the next couple of months, who's preaching on what. And I noticed that I am given humility with many, many possible choices for scripture passages, as if Aaron were trying to say, Doug, you need to spend a lot of time thinking and praying on the subject of humility, uh, which, which brings us to the obligatory humility joke to start off uh, our sermon. The church gave a ribbon to a man for being the most humblest person in the church. Then they took it away when he wore it for the first time. I lie, there's going to be a second joke, uh, and then we're going to, I'm going to have you stand in a second for the, the reading of God's word tonight. Uh, and what I, wa- I just want to tell you, like, after tonight's sermon, I'm going to be doing a workshop that's all about humility, and the title of the workshop is Humility and How I Mastered It. Worked better when it was just me. All right. Uh, If you will, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word tonight. We're going to be coming from the book of Proverbs, our summer series, and there will be one verse that we're going to be really diving into tonight. I want to encourage you to read it with me. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. You may be seated. Let's pray together. So in the name of Jesus, we ask for the presence of God to be with us tonight. Lord, your word tells us that when two or three or more are gathered, you're with us. So we are assured uh, with the faith that you give in us that you are here. So Lord, would you help us be here with you? Would you speak? Would you convict? Would you encourage? Whatever it is that you want to do with us tonight, would you do it? We want to yield ourselves to you and your spirit tonight, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So at the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the most famous sermon that's ever been given, um, Jesus ties it up uh, after a couple of days with roughly 20,000-ish people. He ties it up with a story about a wise man and a foolish man. Um, and one of the things that, that Jesus is really getting after here with this idea of the wise man and the foolish man is he's talking about, like, anyone who would follow me. And so he's talking about his disciples. And he's saying, what I'm trying to do, because he'll say this over and over again, he's like, I, did, I didn't come to get rid of everything that came before. So there, there's law, there's prophets, there's poetry, there are all of these things that are part of, like, the Jewish Bible. I didn't come to get rid of it. I came to fulfill it. And so what Jesus is talking about when he sews up this great sermon is he's like, look, there, there's what I want you to do if you're going to be a disciple is you're going to follow me. And when you do that, what I'm doing is I'm reclaiming what it is to be the wise man. What I'm doing is trying to reclaim, like my disciples are going to be the new wise people. The problem when you read the book of Proverbs over and over again is you're like, this is really, really good. I don't have a shot of doing it. And you're right, you don't. You need help. And so what it is that we're going to talk about tonight is what does it look like for you to be the wise person? But that is 
that's essentially saying, like, I can't do this. I need help. That's why I'm a disciple of Jesus. I want to be wise. I want to walk in his ways, but I can't do it. I need help. And so what, what it is that we're really thinking about tonight is what does it look like for us to be wise? And very specifically, what does it look like for us to, to really see the world as it actually is and to see, for us to see who we really are? So there's this great story. Um, it's, it's one of my favorites. And it has this like step-by-step over a couple of months events with Jesus and his disciples. So you kind of know like for the first couple of months that Jesus is with his disciples, they're not really doing much. They just get to be the royal bag carriers. So like there's Jesus and he's preaching in front of 20,000 people and behind him are 12 people being like, we get to be with him. And then Jesus is doing some miracles and they're not doing anything. They're just standing there and they're like, we get to be with him. And then he breaks bread and he feeds 20,000 people. And they're like, man, we didn't have to do much. We had to hand out some bread, but we got to be with him. And then he casts out demons. We get to be with him. He does some miracles. He raises the dead. He's cleansing lepers. He's doing this and that and this and that and this and that. And they just get to like watch him. And then one day, Jesus comes to them and is like, hey, here, we've got a new strategy we're about to employ. There are all these towns and villages where I'm about to go. And so Peter and John, you're going to go together. Paul and Anne, you're going to go together. And you two are going to go together. And you're going to go to all the places where I'm about to go. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to do the simplest version of what you've just seen me do these last couple of months. And so this is what, like, this is just discipleship 101, Peter. This is what you're going to do. You're going to go into a a village you've never been to before. You're going to find someone who's going to let you stay with them. And the way that you're going to know that, like, they're open to me is that they're going to invite you in as if you've known them all their life. And they're going to feed you, and they're going to give you a place to stay. And everything that you have, I want you to give to them. And there's going to be a time where you're going to have the opportunity to heal some people. You should do that. You should heal some people. And there's going to be a time where, like, there might be a leper, and you should just cleanse all the leprosy. Do that, too. There's going to be a time where you're going to see people who are poor and oppressed and marginalized. I want you to give them good news just like you've seen me give them give good news. And there's going to be a time where there's going to be a dead person. You should pray for them. And there's going to be a time where you, you may or may not run into someone who's got an evil spirit. Just, you know, drive them out like you've seen me do dozens and dozens of times. Cool. <laughs> so off they go, two by two, right? This is, this is uh, we, we see this in three, this is in Mark 6, this is in Matthew 10, this is in Luke 9. Off they go, two by two. And you, get, you get, kind of get the sense in the book of Luke that there's a couple of weeks-ish that pass. And then in Luke 10, 17, it says the disciples return, and their expression is like, can you believe this actually worked? Like, they're talking to Jesus, and their response is, Lord, you're not going to believe this, but even the demons submit to us when we use your name. What we start seeing is like, this is what they do. Like, this is, this is the, the strategy is not just they're the royal bag carriers now. They're the people going in advance to all the places where Jesus is about to go. So the whole like raising the dead, casting out demons, proclaiming good news, talking to random people they've never talked to before and try to get a place to stay. Like, they're just doing this all the time for months and months and months and months. And lo and behold, they're kind of good at it. Now, couple months pass, and they, we were now in Mark 9, 
And Jesus takes three of them and they go up on a mountain. And they spend three days and have this unbelievable experience. It's just Peter, James, and John with Jesus. And they have this crazy set of experiences. And they come down the mountain. And it says in Mark 9, I think it's verse 14, that a large crowd has gathered because we now have a scene on our hands. Because we have nine disciples. We've got a father who is enraged because his son has an evil spirit in him. And the nine disciples have failed in casting the demon out. So what we're talking about is something that is very public is probably incredibly embarrassing. And so what we see Jesus doing is he pulls the guy aside, kind of has a conversation with him, doesn't give like any more like spectacle to this crazy thing that's happening and takes care of the situation and drives the spirit out. I want you to imagine that you're one of those nine disciples. You've had a lot of success. You've been doing this for months now. But now, in front of a huge crowd, and throw into the mix of that, there are some people who are teachers of the law that are there, who are stirring up trouble, looking for a reason to kill your boss. And you. And you've just run smack into a brick wall of failure. I don't know about you, but I would probably feel pretty embarrassed. I would feel disgraced. I would feel like I was a giant failure. I mean, like, this wouldn't... This would be a pretty big moment in my life. And so the question that we have to ask is this. For months, they were successful in doing all this crazy stuff that Jesus asked them to do. And this time, they failed. What happened? What happened? All right, so let's pause there. I want want us to go all the way to the beginning of the story. When I say the story, I mean the story of the stories, which is the Bible. At the very beginning, what it is that we see in Genesis is that God creates everything. And so he creates the sun, he creates the moon, he creates the stars, he creates the earth, he creates the plants, he creates water. He creates all these things, and he looks at them, he's like, those are good. But then he creates what he calls the crown of his creation, which is humans. And when he looks at that, he doesn't just give a thumb up, he gives two thumbs up. And he's like, self, you've outdone yourself. That is really, really good. Like these people that you've created, it's unbelievable. It's like, wow. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just look at them. It's like, man, that's really, really good. What God decides to do, because this is who God is, is that he shares his power from day one. He's like, I, I could just rule over everything because, you know, I'm God, you're not. But my, the way that I'm setting everything up is as a co-rulership. So you get to rule over all of creation. I'm sitting on the throne and I'm inviting you to sit on the throne with me. Like that's the way that everything is set up. He shares the throne of rulership with them. And the, 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 the word that the Bible uses when it's translated into ancient Greek for what humans are is the word icon, E-I-K-O-N. It is where we get the English word icon. Say icon. And this is what it means. It means image reflector. So the, the, the thing that we're thinking about is like when you think about a human being, the way that God thinks about a human being is as if it's a mirror that is walking around that is pointed up. 
so that when you see a human, you would see God. You wouldn't see them. Does that make sense? So here we are, the way that we're created to be is that we're all walking around as the walking image reflectors, these walking mirrors that whenever you see me or whenever I see you, I would see the Father and not you. Because he is God and I am not. That, that's the way that the whole thing has been set up. Humans aren't the point. God is the point. This is a very difficult thing for us because we think we are the center of the story and we actually aren't. God is the center of the story. Humans aren't the point, God is the point. But sometimes, some, sometimes we do forget this, right? I mean, I know y'all have never forgotten that. I, only once or twice in my life, have forgotten that I'm not the point. Sarcasm. Because what happens, like, I'm this mirror, and the mirror starts to slip. And it was perfectly situated to, like, if, if the Lord is right there and the mirror is angled the right way, you see, you see the Lord, you don't see me. But sometimes the mirror starts to slip and you start to see me. And the things that I do, I start to think are about me. So, so let's go back to Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus takes care of the situation. He pulls the son who is possessed, he pulls the father away, and he kind of pulls him away from the crowd over here and deals with it so it's not a spectacle. Now, later on in the day, they go inside, and this is what it says in Mark chapter 9 at verse 28. It says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, so not in front of everyone else, why couldn't we drive it out? And this is what he replied in verse 29. He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This kind can only come out by prayer. Now, when I read that, I, it makes me think of a question. Are there evil spirits that you can drive out without prayer? Like, isn't, I don't know, like, isn't prayer an essential part of this driving out the evil spirit process? Like, why, like, what, why did the disciples think that, like, they could do this on their own? Like, and it makes me wonder, like, I don't, like, this is quite the spectacle, but it makes me wonder, there are nine disciples, and there's this one boy with the spirit and like, did they all one by one have a go at it? And they went 0 for 9 at like not praying? Like, do we, like, this, this is what it makes me think. Why did the disciples think they could do this on their own? Proverbs 11:2, going back to where we started. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. There is a spectacle, a large crowd, teachers of the law who are stirring this thing up, and here's this boy, and first disciple doesn't get it, second disciple doesn't get it, third disciple doesn't, like, first comes pride. There's something in the water here, and they are being very publicly disgraced here. And this is, this is the way that I think that it works. After you start to experience a little success, and it doesn't matter what the success is. We can make it a spiritual success, or we can think 
wrongly so, that it's not a spiritual thing. When you start to experience a little success, I start to believe the hype about myself. I start to believe it. Like what I start to do is I start to let the mirror drop and you see me and not God. There's a shift that starts to happen when I begin to think it's me doing the thing rather than the thing that the Spirit is doing in me. I'm going to read this again. There's a shift that starts to happen when I begin to think that I am the one doing the thing rather than the thing that the Spirit is doing inside of me. Just, just think about this for a second. The disciples, at the beginning of the story, they start from a place of awe and wonder. They come back and they're like, can you believe this stuff works? Like half of us thought Jesus was a crackpot when he sent us out two by two. And we came back and they're like, can you even believe that this thing worked? They started from this place of like, even these spirits are submitting to us when we use your name, Jesus. This is unbelievable. And then they do it again, and then they do it again, they do it again, and again, and they keep doing it, and they keep doing it, and they keep doing it, and eventually, the thing starts to feel normal. They start in this place of awe and wonder, and over time, it just starts to feel normal, because they keep doing it over and over and over again, and then this thing starts to happen when people are like, man, Peter... You're, this, is, this is impressive, Peter. And Peter starts to think that it's him who's doing it. Like they are submitting to the name of Jesus and they keep doing it. It becomes more and more normal and they start to think that it's them doing it, not the spirit within them. Like so for you, it may not be casting out spirits. Maybe it is. Uh, it, it may be... Um, that you've been discipling people for a while now. Um, and eventually, over time, as it's become more and more normal, you've started to think that like, you're the one who's doing that. Uh, it could be that like, you've got a good job, and it started off from a place where you're like, I can't believe the gift that the Lord has given me. I can't believe the door he opened. I can't believe that I'm so hashtag blessed. I can't believe... But like, now you, you started to think, like, well, I mean... Clearly, I deserve this. Like, maybe you've got the gift of kindness and compassion, and people are always telling you just, like, how wonderful you are, and you're starting to believe that without Jesus, you are. Like, maybe it's about hospitality. Maybe it's about leadership. Maybe it's about exercising gifts in the prophetic. Like, whatever it is, like, you've started to believe the hype. Whatever it is, this is what starts to happen. This is, people, people start to look at you, and they're just like, wow, I mean, what you did there. Whew. I mean, I couldn't have done that. It was amazing. And, uh, man, I'm just, I'm just so glad you're here, and you're in my life. Thank you. Because I don't know what I would do without you. Let me tell you, that feels really good. Like I started by saying, like, we, because we've got this rotating teaching team, like every time you get up here, you want this to be your best sermon ever. Why do you think that is? 
Because I want you to tell me that was your best sermon ever. I want to feel good. I want to feel like you need me, right? Like the temptation is always make this the best sermon ever as the starting point and not, hey, maybe this is just a meat and potatoes sermon. And there's a good word that you need to hear from the Lord that is for this people in this place and this time, and it's not going to be the best thing they've ever heard. And that's okay. Like, that's, my, like that, that's just one instance of a kind of temptation that, like, someone up here might feel. There are thousands of temptations that are like that in each of our lives every single day where I want to believe the hype about me. Like, for me, like, on a, on, like going even beyond the personal thing, like, discipleship, I don't know if you've heard, it's kind of a big deal to me. Uh, I really believe in discipling people. And so like I've had, like I'll have these seasons of like 18 to 24 months where I'm discipling groups of people, usually between like four and eight people. And I've, I've done enough of these cycles now where I've noticed a pattern. And the pattern is this. I'm with this group of people. We're discipling, or I'm like, we're investing in them. We're discipling them. We get to know each other. They're starting to get some breakthrough. Uh, things are starting to happen. And maybe like six months in, I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty good at this discipling thing, you know? And I'm not sure I say that out loud, but like on a, a subconscious level, I'm thinking that. And maybe a couple weeks will pass, maybe a month will pass, maybe even a little bit more than that. And what starts to happen is the spiritual power starts to dissipate. Because I bought my own hype. Does that make sense? And suddenly, like the breakthrough that they were receiving from this relational investment they were having, it stops. Because again, I'm a conduit for the great shepherd who is discipling them, and his name is Jesus. I'm not actually the one doing the thing. Jesus is doing the thing. But there are times where they're like, man, it's just so good what you're doing, and I, I want to believe that. Like I want to be the person who's doing that, and I want to take that thing away from Jesus. Again, like what we do is we, we let the mirror drop and you see me and not God. There's a shift that starts to happen when I begin to think that it's me that's doing the thing rather than the thing that the spirit is doing inside of me. Let's, let's just real talk about, let's talk about humility. So this is what Romans 12 says. It says this, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment. There's a key in that verse to understanding what humility is. And this is, this is sort of like the definition that, that I'm working with for humility. It's this, put up the slide. Humility is knowing who you are in relation to God and then living out of that knowledge. Humility is knowing who you are in relation to God and living out of that knowledge. But there are actually two ways of screwing this up. And the problem is that we only think there is one way. One way is to think of yourself more highly than you ought. But there's another way. To think of yourself more lowly than you ought. We often exclusively focus on pride when we talk about humility. Humility isn't saying that you're trash. 
Humility isn't saying you're scum. Humility isn't saying that you're awful. Humility isn't saying that you're awful. God doesn't think that you are trash, that you're scum, that you're awful. So why do you? It is knowing who God is and who he then says you are and living out of that place of security. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And the problem when you think of yourself as more lowly than you actually are, is that it gives you an out. Because who God thinks you are is someone who is supposed to be up on his throne with him, living into the power and the authority that he has given you as an adopted son or daughter who is now a kid of the king, which makes you a prince or a princess. And he's like, all right, let's go. And when you think of yourself more lowly than you ought, you abdicate that. You abdicate that. What we're talking about is choosing to live in reality. That's what we're talking about. We are choosing not to live in fantasy land. Fantasy land is where pride rules because you think of yourself too highly or self-sabotage rules because you think of yourself too lowly. Living in reality says this, God, you're God. Guess what? I'm not. That's, that, that's like step one in living in reality. But it's also then saying, now who do you say that I am? And it is listening to what it is that the Lord says about you. And this is what he says. He says, I am the one that Christ came to save. I am the one that he calls beloved. I am the one that he has chosen to co-rule for all of his creation with. I am the one that he went to hell and back for and would do it again. That is who he says that I am. It is who he says you are. That's reality. Live in reality. Actually live in, don't live in fantasy land, live in reality. Proverbs 11.2 says that when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. For the disciples, they had this, this experience where they had started to buy their own hype. And so it was this thing where pride showed its face and immediately what happens? Boom, big, ugly public spectacle. There are other ways it could have gone for them. That what, we don't know that this happened, but like, what if there were two who, when Jesus sent them out two by two, were like, hey, I know you seem to see something in us, Jesus. We don't see that thing in us, so we're not going to go. That's the opposite side of this coin. And both are choosing to live in fantasy land. Jesus is reclaiming the wise person is his disciple. And that disciple is someone who is marked by humility. Someone who knows that they are in relation to God and lives from a place of health in that place. So tonight, we probably fall, in, like everyone in this room, probably falls into one of two camps. Uh, camp one, uh, we think of ourselves too highly. So if, if you're kind of in that camp, a short word to you. You aren't God. You should remember that. You should probably put your mirror back in place and please don't buy the hype about yourself. That's what's real, so you should live in that. 
to the people who think that they are lower than they actually are, like we have this to say, God doesn't save trash or rule with trash or love trash. You aren't trash. He has gone to hell and back for you and he would do it again. That is what's real. Live in that. For each of us, brothers and sisters, there is an invitation to live into reality. There is an invitation to live into, from a place of health, understanding who God is and living in the reality of who it is that he says that we are. That is what it means to be a humble people, to be the wise ones, and to live as Jesus' disciples. We, we, have a, we have a real invitation this week, and it's... it's in, in many ways, it's just a simple question. Like this week, will you live in the fantasy land of pride or self-sabotage, or will you live in the real world as God has made it and as he has made you? One of the, one of the beautiful things about communion is that it offers us uh, the opportunity, whenever we take it, to, to, to stop and to answer some of these questions. Like communion is, is ultimately about identity. It is ultimately about who God is. He is the savior, which means that I needed to be saved. And then it is also about who I am, the one who was saved and is now the adopted kid of the king. And so Paul, when he's giving his instructions on communion, I'm gonna invite the servers to come up. He talks about taking a moment before we take communion to really think through where it is that we are with the Lord. And so I want to encourage you as we are doing this to really be thinking through, like, who is it right now that you are thinking that the Lord is? And who is it the Lord is, is saying that you are? What does that relationship look like? How are you living from a place of security or insecurity in that place? We remember that uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had, he had his disciples, his reimagined wise people, very imperfect wise people with him. But that was part of the point. And he gathered them together, and he took the bread and he broke it. And likewise, he took the cup and he poured it. And he said, this is my blood, which is being spilled for you. He encouraged his disciples and then all future believers. He said that, Likewise, when you gather, that you would take this meal together. So here we are tonight, some 2,000 years later, a group of people who Jesus had in his mind right before he made this eternal sacrifice. So I want to encourage you before you, you come up, just to take a moment, take a minute or two, spend some time reflecting with the Lord about where it is that you are with him, what humility looks like in your life right now. You do not have to be perfect in this. The point is that none of us are perfect in this, but that we all need help. And so we come to the source of power, to the source of love, to the source of forgiveness at this table tonight. 
Lord Jesus, this is your sacred meal that you've given us. Would we receive it with glad hearts tonight? Amen.
So brothers and sisters, this is the reality we live in. Christ has died. Christ has been risen. Christ will come again. You are the adopted kids of the King. So go in the strength, the power, the security, and the knowledge to live in this reality this week. Grace and peace. We'll see you next week.